I want to ask you, what do you like to talk about? What, what, what topics really perk your interest and, and you just can't help yourself but just go on and on about that particular topic? Perhaps being up here in northern Minnesota, it's hunting. For many of you, you like to share old hunting stories. I know if you get, if you get Ken on a roll, he will share story after story of hunting stories. Am I wrong? Okay, not, I'm not bashing Ken, but just saying, you get Ken on a roll, he'll talk about hunting. Well, one of my favorite topics, and I don't know if it's a favorite one, but one of the topics I like to talk about is sports memorabilia. Uh, I collect uh, baseball cards, football cards, that kind of thing. And uh, I just love talking about memorabilia because that's kind of the big thing right now. You can get a player's autograph on a card, on a jersey, on a piece of a jersey, and there's some value there. And I love talking about the value and, and whether or not the card is a sticker auto or it's an on-card auto or it's certified by a particular company. And if that particular company is fake, it's probably a fake jersey and all these different things. I love talking about sports memorabilia and sports in general. And that's just something that I could go on and on uh, about. Well, we come to, to Luke chapter 1 this morning and we, we find something that Mary likes to talk about. And I want us to look at this passage of Scripture and, and see what she in this passage loves to talk about and, and couldn't help but speak of. But before I do that, I want to jump into what we're dealing with here context-wise so we can kind of get caught up to speed. Here in Luke chapter 1, we, we've seen so far in the first 45 verses that Mary's cousin Elizabeth has been promised a son. Zechariah has found that out through vision with the angel, going all the way back to uh, chap, uh, verse 5. And he's, he's expressed his disbelief, and therefore, because of that, he has remained unable to speak. And Elizabeth has, in verse 24, has uh, conceived, and now she's pregnant, and, and she's hid herself five months and uh, not wanting to make this known. And starting in verse 26, we have the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary and her response as she has found out she's going to be the mother of the Messiah and bring him into the world. She wants to know how it's going to happen and the angel reveals that to her and her response is, okay. Verse 38, then the Mary said, behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. She's willing to, to undergo that uh, great feat. And in verse 39, she makes her way down to her cousins, Elizabeth. She's heard about Elizabeth through the angel and, and has made the trip down to where her cousin is. And her cousin makes these bold statements starting in verse 42 about she is blessed, blesses the fruit of your womb, but why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And she, she revels in what Mary has to Proclaim even in her presence. And then we got into what is known as in tradition the Magnificat or the Song of Mary. And it's different here because as we've been in Ephesians, we've been talking through Paul and his doctrine, what he's written down. We're coming to a different genre of scripture, and that is narrative. And so we have to treat it a little bit differently as we're working through it. So as, as I work through these verses, I'm going to just be, be sharing what Mary has to say about God, and then, then we're going to come up with a, a, a conclusion at the end that'll kind of be our challenge, our, our, our motivation for the coming week. So 
just be aware of that as I'm working through. I'm kind of leading up to a main point here that I want to make. So that's what's going on here in context, and, and here's the, the language, the genre that we're dealing with. Now, it's very interesting if you, you take an a Old Testament glance to 1 Samuel chapter 2, you will find a similar song by Hannah. And if you compare the two, Mary's song here in Luke chapter 1 and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, you'll see some similarities that are striking. And perhaps Hannah's song in 1 Samuel is an influence on Mary's here in Luke chapter 1. So as, as you have time, look at that. That's quite incredible to draw a comparison to see how similar the two praises are. But I want us to notice several things as we go through here uh, this morning from this passage of Scripture that we can see what Mary's talking about. And, and the first one that we learn that she speaks of is that God incites joy. God incites joy. Look at verse 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She takes time to, to rejoice and be joyful in God. And notice, notice, first of all, that this joy overflows from the depths of her soul. She doesn't say my body. She doesn't say my mind. She says my soul. My soul magnifies the Lord. The word soul here has the idea of, a, of the innermost part of a person where his or her emotions, desires, and feelings exist. It what define, it's what defines your personality. It's what makes you you. Some of you in this morning, you, you're more the quiet type. You, you don't really express your emotions too much. You just find yourself more reserved. That's, that's, kind of, that's, that's what we call your soul. Some of you are more, out, are more outgoing, more uh, vocal, more expressive in your emotions and in the way you uh, communicate. And so that's your personality. That's your soul. But Mary here, in whatever framework she finds herself, she is, she is digging deep into her soul, makes her her and praising God. Jump down to verse 47. She also uses the term spirit. And spirit here is, is, a, is a synonym for the soul and just refers to the immaterial part of you. It's, it's, it's the part no one can see, but you know it's there. So, so Mary is praising God, rejoicing God. The joy is flowing from where no one can see. And only she knows how to define it. Notice also here, as we, as we work through the the little possessive pronoun, my. My soul. My spirit. Mary is personally involved in this effort. And she willingly engages in praising God. My soul. My spirit. She doesn't make an abstract description, but she's intentional. She says, my soul rejoices, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. It leads me to conclude this, it's nothing to give God's, it is nothing to give God praise from one's lips. It is more purposeful and significant when it comes from the recesses of the heart. This is where true praise, true joy occurs as a person employs his personality traits to praise God. It means something when it comes from the heart. Consider Psalm 35, verse 9, 
where the psalmist says, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. The joy that Mary expresses because of God flows from the depths of the soul. Notice also as God incites joy, consider also that joy because of God is unhindered. Verse uh, 47 and 46 as well. My My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The word magnifies here refers to the idea of to make large or to glorify, exalt, or praise. And the way the, the, the word is constructed here is that Mary is continually praising God. I began with talking about well, what do you like to talk about? And a reference, I, I hate to pick up Ken because he's not here, but I'll pick on Ken. Uh, Ken just loves to talk about hunting, right? And yet if you get him in a hunting story, he'll just go on and on and on. He's continually talking about it because that's his favorite subject. Well, the uh, same idea is here. The way it's written here is she's magnifying and she continues and will continue to magnify God. She will continue to make Him known and make His glory known and praise Him for what He's done. It's quite an attitude to have for a young woman whose world has just been upside, turned upside down. The word rejoice in verse 47, has rejoiced, means literally to jump much or to be overjoyed. Here the idea conveyed is exuberant happiness that cannot be contained. It's it's like you're bubbling over with happiness you can't contain it. I would liken it to kids who open up, see the gifts on Christmas morning. You remember that. Walking, going down downstairs and seeing all the presents and and just kind of having this bubbling sense of, oh boy, I'm going to get to open them. I'm so happy. And just, you couldn't contain it. You had to just rush in there and start tearing open presents and see what you got. There's just this overflowing joy. Let's say here. Her, her, her soul, the innermost being of her heart, rejoiced at what God had to tell her. And what Mary is referring to here is her experience with the angel Gabriel. Going back to verse 26. You're having that old symphony of, of the angel coming to Mary and telling her that she would be the one chosen to bring the Messiah into the world. At that moment, she rejoiced. She was so full of joy. We consider this as we're, we're thinking about this, this truth that God incites joy. Even though Mary's world had been turned upside down and her idea of how life should go altered, she still could not contain her praise to God. Think about that with me. Yes, there was fear there. I'm sure there was. Mary's probably a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl. I mean, think about that. You're going along your life. You're doing your chores at home. And all of a sudden, an angel comes to you, which, all, which for the most part, the Jews believe wasn't a good thing. But an angel comes to you and says, hey, you're, you're chosen. You're favored by God. You're going to bring the Messiah into the world. Think about all the fear, all the uncertainty, all the, what would her parents think? What would her, her fiancé think? What would, what would her friends think? All, about, all the, the stuff that, that people worry about when it comes to life-shattering news. And yet in that moment, even though there's fear, even though there's uncertainty, Mary is just bubbling over with praise to God. 
And it leaves me to ask this, brothers and sisters, this morning. If Mary was bubbling with praise to God, even amid uncertainty, cannot you and I be the same way in the difficult circumstances of our lives? When we're facing difficulty, when we're facing uncertainty, when we are facing trial and tragedy, even in the midst of that, even in the, the, the bare despair, can we employ ourselves to be joyful in God? And again, that's hard. I'm sure for Mary it was hard to be in a spot where her world had come down and just the way things were just turning in such a quick fashion to, to be in a spot where you went from just being an a engaged young woman to now being pregnant with the Messiah and all the emotions surrounding that. But in that moment, she chose to praise God and cannot you and I do the same thing? Cannot you and I express our joy in God because of who He is and what He's done? No matter the circumstances. Notice also here, as we think about this, this idea, this truth that God incites joy. Thirdly, God, joy because of God results in praise which is directed to Him alone. The end of the, each of the section here, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. The word Lord here means Master. Emphasizes someone's authority or control. And, and Mary's using this term here to describe God as sovereign king who holds authority over all things. His rule is uncontested and he holds absolute authority. She makes large or glorifies the, the, the king of heaven, the sovereign king who rules over all and who in that moment has chosen her for this very important task. And she talks about here God. And here, here, it's very interesting to note that in the original language here, the Greek New Testament, the word God has a definite article in front of it. And we don't, we don't have that in the English language, but it's significant because it, it identifies that Mary's talking about the one true God. Not a, a random God from a pagan deity. Not a, an idol that she had in her house. No, she's talking about the one true God who knows no other God and exists as the supreme deity. Perhaps she is thinking about Isaiah 44, verses 6-8, through 8, where God says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So Mary's not, not just randomly receiving joy because of just random interaction with an idol. No, she, she is joined because of God. The one true God has done this for her. Notice also she uses the term Savior. It's a title. And refers to the idea of, of deliverance or preservation. And the emphasis, God my Savior, is 
The one of preserving God's people from the devastating consequences of sin, whether by his judgments or the sinful actions of man. Mary puts that, again, that possessive pronoun there, my, showing that she needed a Savior. She needed somebody to redeem her from her sinful ways. She needed a Savior to bring about change in her life, and God is the only one who can do that. It's possible here that Mary is quoting Habakkuk 3.18, where Habakkuk writes, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Think about that. In the moment, in the, in the, the fear and the anxiety and the, the uncertainty of the moment, she is still choosing to rejoice joy because of who God is. God is the one true God, her Savior. And she chooses that that is the place where her joy is to come from. And it, it leads me to ask this question this morning. Is your joy grounded in God? Is your joy grounded in God? Think about this past week. As you went about your daily routine, as you went to work perhaps, as you faced certain circumstances, was your joy this past week grounded in God? Or was it grounded in your circumstances? Was your joy dependent upon how work went? Or was your joy dependent upon what God has done for you and who He is? And I stand as a guy before you this morning that, that struggles with that. Because guess what? My, my joy, my, my happiness, if you will, oftentimes I tie that to my circumstances. I tie that to how my relationship with my wife is going. Or I tie that to how just life overall feels. But Mary, in her, in her world turned upside down, chose to have her joy in God. And cannot you and I, when we face the, the uncertainty, the, un, the, the dangers of life, the fear of life, cannot we choose to make sure that our joy, our, our happiness that comes from the deep part of our soul, can we not choose that that comes from God and not our circumstances? Is your joy grounded in God? Secondly, as we, we, we look at another truth that this song of Mary reveals, we find that God uses the insignificant to do His will. Verse 48, For He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Notice what God did for Mary in this, in this, this one brief verse. He promoted a powerless nobody. For he has regarded the lowly state of his hand, or his maidservant. The word for there connects, uh, gives a reason for why Mary can rejoice and have her joy grounded in God. For it is the mere reality that God used Mary is more than enough cause for praise. <laughs> I mean, think about this. A young girl, 13, 14, gets it. The mere fact that God used her is more than enough reason for her to praise God. She didn't need anything else. 
She didn't need the reality that God was going to bring the Messiah into the world to be another, the, the, the reason enough to praise God. No, God used her, and that was enough for her to praise God. Because he regarded her. The word regard here has the idea of to look favorably upon, to show partiality. God showed favor to Mary by choosing her for this task. And I would use the illustration here of picking teams for a kickball game. Remember that when you were kids? You lined up on the, the playground field and you began picking teams, right? And again, I've used this illustration before. Normally, if you were like me, you got picked last because there was nothing really too fantastic about you. But, but imagine that we're picking a team. You're on one side, I'm on another side. And we start picking we start getting, kind of getting our ideas of, of who we'll pick first. And your turn comes up and you pick a person. And my turn comes up and I pick this little kid who's got freckles all over his face. He's missing an arm. He has, you know, just, just the most un, unkempt look ever. And I pick him first to be on my team. And you're over there standing thinking, What's he doing? That kid can't play. I, I, man, he can, he can barely stand up, and you're picking him? I wouldn't do that. Well, that's what God did. God picked a, a small Jewish girl who nobody was even considering as the one that he would use to bring the Messiah into the world. Which, by the way, I'm thankful God is in control of that, not me, because I wouldn't have done that. But yet God chose her to fulfill that task. A powerless nobody. She says, he, he looked on my lowly estate, or a lowly state. The word lowly state here refers to a low condition or status. There was a couple things that Mary had going against her in society. She was low on the, on the ladder, if you will, by virtue of her birth. She was a Jew. And not a rich one either. Most likely, she, she lived in an area that was very much on the, used to shepherding sheep and being involved in some sort of agriculture. And that wasn't looked very favorably in, the, in, the, in that time period. So she, she didn't have much going for her when she was born. But also, she didn't have anything going for her by, by virtue of her, her gender. She was a female. She was a woman. And, and in that culture, man was first. Woman was second. I know that's not today, but that was that culture back then, okay? My wife's smirking back there because I tease her about that once in a while. And I get to sleep on the couch. Uh, <laughs> but, but that was reality back then. That, that, that the women did not have a prominent position. And if you did, you had wealth behind it. She was low. She didn't have a lot going for her. But what God did follows what the psalmist says in Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty or the proud he knows from afar. Aren't you thankful that the God who is the one true God, the one who is over all things, even regards little pieces of dust as you and I? That the high God, the most high, takes thought for those 
who are so insignificant. To the point that Mary says that she's just a simple slave. Let's say the word maidservant. She has no will of her own. She exists to do the will of her master. And in this case, Mary considers herself nothing more than God's slave who does his bidding. What an attitude to have. When Mary could have, could have just stood up and said, What, God, what are you doing? I've got all these plans and I've got all these things I want to do. God, you're messing it up. She views herself as a simple slave of God. What an attitude to have. And what a challenge for us in a day and age where we live where entitlement and, and privilege seems to be the order of the day and rather than humility and willing to do even the most basic things for God. Secondly, as we consider this point, and I'm sorry that came up here and I don't know why. He deserves the glory for the favor he has showed Mary. Consider, look at uh, the end of verse 48. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. The word generations here refers to the races of people. And and Mary uses all generations to to broaden the definition to all peoples of the earth, not just the Jewish nation. It would be easier for her to to just focus in on the Jews because that's where her origin. But she she broadens it out to talk about all people regardless of their their ethnic background. So all people, regardless of their ethnic background, will call her blessed. The idea that there is... Uh, to be favored. And the emphasis is on the one who did the favoring. So in this instance, God has blessed her and God did the blessing. Not Mary. Mary didn't achieve it by some effort on her own. She received a blessing from God. And therefore she's favored. Psalm chapter 1 starts out this way. Blessed is the man. And that's the idea there that he is, he is favored. God has blessed Mary so significantly that subsequent people who will look back at this event and praise God for blessing Mary in this way. All generations, all people will look back and say, God surely was great in blessing Mary, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Now this, this contradicts, very briefly, I want to just talk about this, this contradicts the divine status that the Roman Catholic Church has given Mary. Mary's elevated to this, this almost, this, well, this, in fact, God-like status where she now is the intercessor for man and, and she does all these divine things. Well, that's not what's going on here. Mary did not achieve a perpetual blessed status because of her, her willingness to be the mother of the Messiah. She didn't attain divinity because of it. Instead, God, was, God favored her this one time for this one occasion. That's it. And if you look at, as we, if you look at the Gospels moving forward, Mary doesn't play a prominent role in Jesus' ministry. She appears several times. What I love about Christ is that he cared for his mother, made sure she was provided for. But her one, if you will claim to fame, is that she was favored and used by God in this one, for this one purpose. And that was enough. That was it. And it leads me to ask this point of application. This morning, do you praise God for the favor He has shown you? 
Do you praise God for the favor he has shown you? I mean, ultimately, we could just say the favor he has shown us that he saved us, right? And that is more than cause for praising God. Do you in your lives, and as you go through daily lives, do you, do you consider the favor he has shown you and does that result, result in praise to him for taking a nobody like you and using, him for, using you for his service? I'm a nobody. Really. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who grew up in southwest Minnesota, grew up in a small farming town, and I have no particular standout features. But yet God has still favored me. God has still blessed me. And therefore I can praise him, if not for the basic thing that he saved me. But are you praising God? Are you, are, are you praising God for the favor that He has shown to you? Thirdly and lastly, this, this is the big section. As Mary wraps up her song, we discover this one final truth: God is the one true God. And she gives several statements of truth about God here. The first one is that He can do anything. For he who is mighty, verse 49, has done great things for me. The word mighty here refers to power by virtue of inherent ability. It's the ability to have power. And God has the natural ability to do anything regardless of the task. We'll get to this in, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 3. But Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, then all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The mightiness, the power of God, He can do anything. And when you put those two terms together, has done great things for me, Mary notes that God has used that ability to do the impossible in her life. God has do, done what Man considers impractical, impossible, and God has done it for Mary. He has made her his servant and done great things and through her simply by choosing her to be the mother of the Messiah. Which again leads me to say, if God can do this for Mary, the impossible, can he do the same for you? You've got a situation in your life right now, you just look at it and you're like, Man, I don't know how I'm going to get through it. I don't know how I don't know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But you've got a God who does the impossible, and He is worthy of that trust because He can do anything. Like Paul said in Ephesians, we've just read far more abundantly, and you and I can trust Him for that. Second thing that she talks about here is that he is holy. He is holy, and holy is his name. The word holy speaks to the moral perfection without blemish. And here, used of God, it refers to his moral perfection, which cannot tolerate the imperfection of sin. He laid this out way back in the law. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For God, I the Lord, your God, am holy. That's his name. That's his title. 
Holy is God and God is holy. God defines holiness and holiness defines God. The two go together. He is a holy God. And that is why he demands, on a side note, he demands that we come to him in holiness and the only way that's possible is through his son, Jesus Christ. He is holy. Thirdly, that she reveals that he is compassionate to those who follow him. Verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Where mercy, we've seen it before. It refers to that compassion or pity. In the Old Testament, the word, the word refers to God's covenantal love, meaning that God will continue to show love and compassion even though it is not returned. Mary highlights that God willfully engages in compassionate actions and is concerned to help those who need help. The word fear here refers to a reverential fear of God that obeys because He is in control. It's not, it's not a cowering fear. It's not a fear of, man, I messed up. What's God going to do now? It's, okay, God, I will obey because you're in control. I fear you. And the, the, the construction of the sentence shows, shows that the mercy, the compassion of God is on those who fear him and who continually fear him, who continually have that attitude. It's not for those who just fear him one day and don't fear him the next. It's not for those who just choose to obey one God, God one day and then they get the rest of the, the week off. No, the reverential fear of God is for those, and the, the mercy of God is to those who continually practice that reverential fear. And the phrase generation to generation here emphasizes the re- reliability of God's mercy. He faithfully shows mercy regardless of who he deals with and at what time in history he deals with them. Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 5, verse 10. He says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a faithful God. He will continue to show mercy, continue to be passionate, even to those people who are generations down the road from us. And by way of a, of a side application note this morning, are you actively fearing God? God is compassionate to those who follow Him, and, and those who follow Him fear Him. They are reverential in their fear. They obey because He's in control. Is that you? Does that define you this morning? Are you a, a casual fearer of God? Or are you deliberate, deliberate in that day by day? The fourth thing she reveals about God here is that He is powerful. He has shown strength with His arm. The word show has the idea of to accomplish or do. And she's referring to past actions. Perhaps she is thinking about God taking the children of Israel out of Egypt and showing the great strengths that God did there, the power that God portrayed there. Perhaps she is thinking about the time of David when God did great things through David and showed his power and his strength there. The word strength here means to express resident strength, exhibit it, make it, make it known, make it on display. It's a demonstration of power for all to see. And notice what God uses. He uses his arm. And, and the word arm here refers to the activity of God in the affairs of men. Just like men use their arms to get work done, and we all use our arms to accomplish different tasks, whether it be at our, our jobs or at home, 
So God uses his figurative arm to complete the tasks he desires, and he, he puts that strength on display. He is truly a powerful God. Which again leads me to ask this morning, do you realize that you serve a powerful God? Or is your God not big enough to get out of the little box you put him in? God is powerful. Mary, Mary proclaims that. He has, he has shown, he has demonstrated his strength with his, his activities. And if God was that real to Mary back then and she, and she recalled that to her mind, even in her, her, her confusion and, and just uncertainty, cannot you and I trust the same God who is powerful, who does things beyond our imagination? He was powerful enough to take care of that program you got in school. You know, you're struggling to learn a particular subject. You're struggling to perhaps get fit, fit in with the, the, the people that you, you uh, encounter in school. God can help you out with that. God, why? Because he's powerful. He's able to do those things. Fifthly, Mary just highlights another truth about the one true God, that he destroys the feigned superiority of man. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The word scatter here has the idea of to disperse. The idea of the picture here is, is the chaff of the wheat being tossed up and the wind blowing it away. Because that chaff is so light, it just moves about easily when it's tossed up and the wind blows it. And who does he, who does he scatter? He scatters the proud. Those of arrogance or high-mindedness. The word here describes thinking that you are superior to everyone else. Which, let's be honest with you, we've all struggled with that at times in our lives. The proud think they, they, they know better. They, they can do better. They're superior. And yet God treats them nothing more like objects that can be blown by the wind. And where do they think they're superior? They think they're superior in their imagination, their thought processes, their, the way they can think, the way they think things out, the way they plan. In context here, we're talking about the pride influencing the process of thinking that bring about a perfect result. It's the idea of a man sitting there thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this, and then this is what's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I can do it. And just he goes through it and he makes those plans and thoughts in his mind. But even in those processes of Thinking about that, God scatters that as chaff in the wind. It's nothing to him. He just blows it away. They, they do this in their hearts. Again, the seed of a human emotions. This is where the thoughts are taking place. It's, it shows their desires. It shows that they, they have this mindset in themselves that they're superior. Nothing can be in their way. And they can do anything they want. Because I planned it out. I just, I'm so superior in my thinking and way I do things that I'm just going to accomplish goals, goals, goals. We're going to move forward. But they're nothing more than a haystack before God who was able to destroy them in a single breath. You thankful for that this morning? You have a God who destroys those who think they're superior. Not, not, not in a, in a ha ha, gotcha so. It's more of a the God justifies. God doesn't take lightly to pride. He, he deals with it. To the point that if you consider Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar, as he comes to that end of his, uh, that last story that he's in, 
going through that whole trial they went through, being turned into an animal, his response is this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God brings to nothing, destroys those who think they are superior. Which again, in context of what we're talking about here in Luke, Mary is a despised person. A proud person would have looked at her and looked at what God had planned and said, no, I, I can do it better. But even God takes that down and destroys that. Sixthly, and we have to hurry on here, he elevates what society despises. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. The word put down here has the idea of to, to cause someone to go to another place from one area to another. And here the context is the mighty, the strong are taken from thrones, symbols of power and prestige, and are placed somewhere else lower than what they once had. These rulers are sovereigns, these People with governmental authority are removed by God. Even though they have authority, God removes them to another place lesser than what they were. And He exalts the lowly. Where exalt here means to lift up or raise high. Puts in a place greater than it once was. Again, the word lowly here means to uh, the humble estate. A base condition with no little value. In Mary's song, or Hannah's song, excuse me, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Mary, uh, Saint, <laughs> Hannah refers to this. He, she says, The bows of the mighty are broken. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make him sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. God exalts those who are lowly. We might, we might illustrate today by talking about a homeless man becoming the President of the United States. You know, obviously, we, we, our minds are thinking, well, man, that's not going to happen. Homeless people, they just don't have any value, do they? I mean, they sit on the road and ask for money and ask for help, and that's all they seem to do, and society doesn't uplift, uplift them. They, they despise them in some cases, and well, most cases. Picture a homeless man winning the election and becoming president of the United States. That would just be totally foreign to our thinking, but that's the picture of what God did and does. He elevates what society despises. Seventh, he satisfies the needy and empties the prosperous. The word uh, here in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The word filled here means to, to be satisfied. Those who are hungry or desiring food, lack of food, is just propelling them. They are continually experiencing that state, but he fills them. He satisfies those who are continually hungry. And notice what he satisfies them with. He satisfies them with good things. Those things which are beneficial. It's not just one thing, it's multiple things to the point that they are satisfied. But the opposite is the rich. 
those who, those who have the wealth and are growing in their wealth, those he sends away. Those, those again, uh, the word send away means to remove to another place. He dismisses them. He gets rid of them. And he makes them empty. Means to be, the word empty here means to be without content. Nothing to be considered. They have no value, so he sends them away. Here's the irony. The rich who have everything are sent away with nothing. <laughs> the rich who have everything are sent away with nothing. It's the rich young ruler, right? In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do this, you know, uh, do these two commandments. Come follow me. What's his response? He goes away sad because he was rich. The rich God sends away empty. Because the riches there don't count with God but he elevates, he satisfies those who are hungry. Are you hungry for God today? Or are you so rich that you see no value in God? I hope you're not that. I hope you're a hungry person. I hope you desire God. Because he alone satisfies those who are truly hungry. And lastly here from the last two verses, verses 54 and 55, he fulfills his promises. Mary highlights the Jewish nation here. The promises of Abraham. The promises God made to Abraham and his descendants. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and the compassion of God as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. The word help means to take someone's part by assisting God helped the nation by coming alongside them to, to, to help them in their efforts. The picture here is a king helping a servant, which is ironic because kings don't help servants. Servants help kings. But God still did that for the nation of Israel. And we'll do that again one day. In remembrance of his mercy, the word remembrance means to bring to mind. God, God acted and help to the nation of Israel because of what he promised. He's acting on that promise, on that memory. Just as he spoke, just as this, he made that covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12-17 through 17, that his children would be as the stars in the heavens and that his line would not end. These promises are what motivates God to help the nation of Israel. And those promises were continually revealed as, as a reminder to subsequent generations of Jews that God was and is going to fulfill His promises. And in that moment, Mary is viewing her situation and saying, God will fulfill His promises even as I'm helping to fulfill a promise that He gave so long ago. He fulfills His promises. Do you see what a great God you have? A holy God, a powerful God, a God who satisfies a God who keeps his promises. And that, <laughs> considering what we got going right now in our political situation, that means a lot. God keeps his promises. He uplifts what is despised. He shows mercy to those who fear him.
Do you see what a great God you have? All of us have our favorite topics of discussion, things we like to talk about. That can lead to a lot of hours of entertainment and questions and answers. But this Christmas, may I suggest to you that the most important thing you and I need to do this Christmas is to talk about God. That's what Mary did. She could have talked about all the plans that she had for the Messiah to come and what she was going to do and how she was going to live. And that could have been what she would talk about with her cousin as she's visiting. But no, she talks about what God has done for her and who God is. So as we think about this Christmas, as, as important as family, history, and memories are, those things are all important. Let's make this Christmas about God. He is the priority for our Christmas interactions.